Alright, uh, we're continuing in the study of Hebrews, and I'd like to read a section uh, from chapter 3, the first 13 verses. There's a lot here, and I'm not necessarily going to cover everything that's here, but at least uh, let's use this as our basis uh, for getting at a key point. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, as I'm reading this, don't just think about what I'm reading. He's calling us, this is a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The language here is, you know, just filled with uh, meaning. The, the first word here, therefore, is, of course, referring back to chapter 2, in which he's just explained why Jesus had to suffer and die. You know, he became like us so that we might become like him. He freed us from slavery to death through, you know, the slavery to fear. And he says we're subject to this slavery all of our lives. There, there is the meaning of why Jesus died. And now he's moving from this discussion of the suffering and death of Jesus into the enjoyment of what we might call resurrection life. So what stands behind Jesus' defeat of death is his resurrection. And chapter 3 then is inviting us to this heavenly calling. This, you know, he calls us brothers. Fix your eyes. Consider Jesus. Uh, he's the one who we're to imitate. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful. So we're to imitate Christ. He's our model. Uh, and so what characterized Christ is not fear, but he, through a fallen Christ, we can enter into this rest, into 
actually the presence of God is what he's arguing. And I think that if we're thinking here that he's gesturing toward the temple, which may in fact be up and running, and saying, wait a minute, here is the true temple, here is the fulfillment uh, of the, the meaning of the temple. So it's no longer that we're subject to the deceit of sin. He uses that phrase. He's just used it in chapter 2. Uh, that we are freed from this deceitfulness. Remember how the deceitfulness of sin worked. In Genesis chapter 3, you know, the idea that uh, if you uh, deny death, then, you know, uh, that you won't die. You'll be like God's. Well, that's a picture throughout Scripture of the way that we're enslaved by Satan. And chapter 3 then tells us, okay, now consider Jesus. There's two startling things that are set forth in this verse. First of all, Christ is the builder of the true temple, and he says we are that true temple. Uh, We are that temple today, now. In other words, any day that's called today. I think this may be hard for us to believe. (laughs) Okay, let me just throw that out there. Uh, That we are the heirs of a kind of disenchanted secular world. We may believe in God, but I think our tendency is to believe, yeah, he's distant though. He's far away from us. And uh, Hebrews is telling us he's near, that he's indwelling us so we tend uh, I I, uh, I think in our modern period to distance God but I would say that's not just secularism or modernism certainly that's peculiar to us that we are secular and modern but it's not peculiar to us I think it's the human tendency to picture ourselves you know alienated separated conceptually, religiously, and experientially. I think that's just what we tend to do. And this tendency is called sin, right? <laughs> I mean, let's, let's name it. Uh, Christ is defeating this tendency in us and in the alienated world or worlds that we create for ourselves. I think we inhabit a world that in fact is very much one that's not occupied by God. Not because that's the reality, but because that's the false world that we create. So the essential problem which Christ addresses is this alienation. And this alienation gets expressed in you know what I'll call dualisms. What I mean by dualisms is that there's a complete separation between God and us. Many have noticed there's a similarity between the the gospel of John and the book of Hebrews, especially in this. You know, John expressed these dualism. He says there's light and darkness, life and death, up and down, truth and lies. And, of course, the picture in John is that we see light overcoming darkness, life defeating death, and the vertical world, you know, being brought into... uh, a horizontal reality and so too in Hebrews the, the, there is a dualism that's presented one is spatial heaven and earth and the other is temporal this coming age or Sabbath and uh, what I've suggested is he's 
in Hebrews, heaven and earth are being brought together in two different directions. First of all, what is earthly and human, Jesus, enters the Holy of Holies. And what is heavenly, or of the glory of God, is coming to earth. Remember, this this is what he's saying throughout. He calls us brethren. He calls us brethren to Jesus, who has experienced this glory of God. And he's saying, this glory is now of coming to us, that God is coming to earth in Christ, that heaven is coming to earth. And then the other is the time period. Uh, that he pictures two ages the time of the Sabbath the future, the coming age but what he's saying about it now is the Sabbath now the coming age has arrived not that it's fully arrived not that heaven has completely come to earth but the Sabbath rest is available in an ever continuous present moment called today that we can begin to inhabit this new time, this new space, and enter into the world that Hebrews is describing. Christ, as the high priest, has passed into the Holy of Holies, into the glory of God, on our behalf. That is, it's not so much that he's bridging realms that are inherently separate, as he's completing the purposes of creation and human beings as a fit dwelling place for God. Let me say something and then I'll abridge it. Sin is the dividing wall sustaining these apparent dualisms. Christ defeats sin, right? We all agree to that. But I think that more than that, Christ is completing the creation purpose of human beings. The dualism which stands behind every form of sin, both the writer of John, Hebrews, I think it's there in in the Pauline epistles, Uh, it's a Gnostic dualism perhaps or forms of thought that would fit into a kind of Platonic dualism that maybe hasn't become Gnosticism. What Hebrews in the New Testament is trying to foster is a new form of thought. And to get there, I think we have to change up our natural tendencies. I think we just tend to think in these split level sort of ways. And so Hebrews... It is going to use language that sounds very Platonic, and we just were entering into it. It's the language which comes closest to Plato. You know, Plato's the ultimate dualist. And Plato talks about this world as if it's a world of shadows. The writer of Hebrews refers to the shadows, but the shadows are not, you know, reflecting the forms that are up in heaven. But he's saying here that Moses was the shadow and now we've entered into the reality. We are the true temple. That is that the reality is one that has arrived. The coming of Christ is not pointing, you know, it's not an atemporal or, you know, another spatial form in the static forms. I don't know if, you know, is the writer of Hebrews doing this purposely over and against Platonism? He may well be. But even if he's not, I think Platonism or that dualism stands behind every false form. Now, this is a very similar thing that's happening with the term Logos in John. That Logos is one of the favorite Platonic terms. But, of course, what John is saying is that Christ has become 
He is enfleshing the Logos. And so there is a unifying factor in Christ in Hebrews, in the theology of 1, 1 to 3, that it's Christ who stands behind creation and is bringing uh, this to bear, is bringing this unifying factor, bringing reality, you know, the reality of heaven, the reality of the Sabbath time into the reality of our world. If we picture, if you will, you know, that sin is always the same thing. That's what I'm arguing here. And I don't mean, oh yeah, sin's always, you know, uh, playing cards and listening to country and western. I don't know what's, you know. We can have a kind of trivial notion, but I think that sin is a structure. It's a system. And the way that this system works, it's always uh, in and through these binaries, these dualisms. Uh, It can be manifest in any number of ways. But I think that to recognize what Hebrews and what John and the rest of the New Testament is doing, they're attacking this false teaching that is a a kind of, you know, in nugget form, the singular structure which is manifest itself today in the world that we live in modernity, in secularism. We live in in a world that is almost devoid of divinity. And in that sense, it is a kind of strange period But it's a period that the the New Testament and the book of Hebrews very much addresses. That it gets at the root problem that we face because the root problem we face is just the root problem that every age faces. That we all fall into some form of dualism. And so it is the problem, I think, that we can talk about the orientation to death. How is that so? Because we imagine, you know, this we discussed this with the Tower of Babel. People imagine that they can create their own self-contained uh, purposes, their own imminent purposes. Uh, and in some way, that's just what we're always doing. By exploiting the built-in tensions, you know, of death denial... This is Satan's power. And we can understand how this power establishes itself by the way of seeing how Christ has overcome it. For if the death that Jesus freely dies is what defeats the prince of this world, we can understand that destructive death resistance may be the best answer we have to the way his kingdom prospers. We understand sin through salvation, and that's true here in the book of Hebrews. The writer's telling us what this salvation looks like, and from that perspective we can see what it is we're being delivered from. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. That is, I think, the universal human predicament. That's what I think the faith of Abraham. You know, the God in whom Abraham believes restores the dead to life and calls into being those things which had not been. These statements apply to the patriarch. Because the condition that it calls for is resurrection. You know, this is the inescapable bondage of death 
uh, you know, that Paul, he draws the conclusion for us, without growing weak in faith, he thought of his own body, which is as good as dead, for he was nearly a hundred years old and of the dead womb of Sarah. Romans 4, 19. Under the influence of Paul, and I think Paul has influenced the writer of Hebrews, there's a similar line of thought that faith that came from one man who was himself as good as dead, there are descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. By faith, when Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. This is chapter 12 or chapter 11 of Hebrews. He who had received the promises was ready to sacrifice his only son, of whom it is said that Isaac, through Isaac shall your descendants be called, uh, he, you know, as great as the stars in the sky. He reasoned that God, here's the key point, what is Christian faith? What is the faith of Hebrews? He reasoned that God was able to raise the dead. And so received Isaac back as a symbol. I'm saying this in chapter 3 because the writer of Hebrews is going to clearly say that faith is resurrection faith. And I think what he's describing in chapter 3 is living out this resurrection faith. Entering into rest, Sabbath rest. No longer being deceived by sin. Uh, you know, Entering into the glory of God. The specific way in which the antagonism and alienism, alienation between humans and God is overcome is through the work of Christ as high priest here in chapter 3. Uh, the son's humanity, his suffering, his defeat is one of the central elements in the contrast. You know, he's saying the son is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. The son's humanity, though, is the crucial factor in that he's in, uh, invited to sit at the right hand of the father and the fact that he's greater than Moses. It's something that no angel ever achieved. The author's interpretation, you know, he's referencing Psalms 8 here, is a, an appeal to the tradition uh, about Adam's original glory and I don't know if I agree with this was Adam originally in this sort of glory well at least that was what Adam was created for was to be was to share in God's glory in the way that Christ will Adam was created to glorify God and Christ completes the purposes of Adam uh, so only as a man only in flesh can the son sit at the right hand of the father. The son therefore takes his rightful place at God's right hand through resurrection. And it's our own belief in the resurrection that we can begin to enter into this rest now, that we can begin to enjoy, you know, what the son, the model that the son sets for us. When the son was brought again into the heavenly world, he entered that as a human being with indestructible life. And that's the basis that he's our high priest, right? That's the reason he's greater than Moses. That's the reason that the house that he builds is not a temporary house. This is strange, isn't it? It's a little odd. If you're, not, if you're missing what I'm saying, I'm saying that 
Christ in his flesh sits at the right hand of the Father because it's precisely his humanity that you know is uh, mediated and the means that God is mediated to us and that our that we then have access to the Father. Uh, there is the there is a kind of precedence for this understanding uh, in which uh, people you know are caught up and they're in they're they're taken up you know into God's glory, um, but it's a it's a maybe it's a, a difficult conceptual possibility. Let me suggest this conceptual possibility. If you're thinking here a minute, wait a minute, this all sounds strange. I think this is precisely the problem we have in imagining that the reality of the human condition is one that can accommodate deity and that deity is one that we can experience, that God is one that we can experience in our humanity. The easy way to do this is just to you know, kill off our humanity and say, well, it's as spirits. And that Jesus, you know, when Jesus ascended, he ascended as a spirit. But that's not what the writer is saying. He's bringing humanity together with deity. After Jesus' death, he was the first to have experienced, the writer will say in 1135, the better resurrection. It's a transformed, a glorified, a perfected human life. The body the Son has in heaven, it's not just a ministering spirit. It is flesh and blood, but no longer subject to the destructive forces of death. He offers his blood. He offers himself. That's what's said in heaven. It's a human body imbued with God's glory. All the glory that Adam lost, perhaps, it's imbued with that glory through indestructible life. This is why resurrection is at the center of our faith. Resurrection marks the point at which he came into the possession of this glorified humanity, and it's our resurrection that we come into this same possession, right? How are you saved? Well, you're saved through resurrection, bodily resurrection. How do you begin to live out that salvation now? Through belief in resurrection. We live out resurrection life right now. With that glorified blood and flesh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, he ascended into heaven where he reigns, But also, in other words, the significance is not just that Jesus is divine, but that he is our great high priest, that he suffered and died and been raised. And so when this is, the ascension is envisioned, um, the way that he is accommodated in heaven, here in this passage, he was glorified. And the idea here is the body of the ascending human in other cases. You know, actually there's tradition that Moses ascended into heaven. And uh, once glorified, not only can the individual stand in God's presence, but remarkably the picture is a relationship to the angelic inhabitants of heaven changes. Remember the angels are the ones who bar the way at the garden. 
They seem to be the ones who bar the way to access to God. But the glorified human contains a, a status above the angelic inhabitants. That's the writer of Hebrews. He's saying that Christ is greater than the angels because of his glorification. And so too the promise is we will be so glorified and that we can appear then in the presence of God. That we're made fit to dwell in the presence of God through the glorification that Christ receives in his humanity. Um, so Jesus has become the high priest. The writer has, is going to argue, he's going to use this phrase, the order of Melchizedek. So it's not on the basis of him being you know, of the tribe of the Levites because he's of the tribe of Judah. It is evident our Lord was ascended from descended from Judah, a tribe with uh, to which Moses spoke, you know, nothing about concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, listen to this. Why is Jesus our high priest? But according to the power of an indestructible life. Right? His resurrection life is the means that he is our high priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus can be the high priest because there is another sort of priesthood. He can be the new Moses. He can give us the new temple on the basis of his resurrection life. Jesus' resurrection is central to the argument of the book of Hebrews, but it's central to our faith, right? Moses is the immediate comparison here in chapter 3, and there's, you know, it, even when Moses in traditions outside of the Bible is talked about ascending in, the, in a kind of a bodily ascension, uh, it's that he's glorified in some way there it's not in other words the point is it's not a spiritual or a dream ascension but he is in other words there's a tradition that even Moses in his was bodily brought into the presence of God some link this to to Psalms 8 5 which the writer of Hebrews is referencing that is the early Jews thought oh this must be talking about Moses his ascension his glorification But the writer of Hebrews says, no, the psalm is not talking about Moses. It's talking about Jesus. So he may be purposely linking. He said, okay, you know this tradition. But the tradition is actually, you know, from Psalm 8.5 is actually about Jesus. In the, there's a Talmud Bablai. And there's the account of the angelic hostility toward Moses in the story of his uh, ascension that the angels have a problem with his ascension. Flesh and blood have no business entering the heavenly realms, angels being spiritual beings. So God's solution to this angelic challenge is not to disembody Moses, but to wrap Moses in his own glory. Have Moses advance to the heavenly throne. Uh, Mortal Moses, you know, in, in other words, must be protected from the angels in this Talmud. Uh, and God's extension of his glory to Moses provides that protection. I'm saying that 
The means is there for us to enter into the very glory of God because we see this has happened to Christ Jesus. God seeks to glorify creatures. Irenaeus once wrote, The glory of God is man fully alive. The Son is identified in 1.3 as the one who is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus' exalted position in 2.9 is correlated with his being crowned with glory. And in 2.10, he leads many children into glory. That is, we're ushered into the very presence of God through Christ. The Son's elevation above the angels then is on the basis of his, you know, his, uh, his, death, his suffering, death, resurrection, his glorification. And the Son's possession of glory is linked with his assumption of the the heavenly throne as the high priest, his exaltation, and to our exaltation. Uh, So too in in 2.8-9, Jesus is, is identified, who for a little time was made lower than the angels, but has now been crowned with glory and honor. And so... In accounts that have affinities, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's the Greco-Roman world, there's philosophical world. But I, and in saying this, don't don't glaze over on me, because I think the Greco-Roman philosophical understanding, the dualisms of heaven and earth, and between the resident, I think that that's our world more than the Christian understanding. And so the human spirit is already, you know, in this understanding, in this false understanding, a spark of heavenly light, of divine, you know, essence. I'm saying this is wrong. As such, the spirit ascends by escaping the earthly body, being permanently freed from flesh and blood. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's not only as a spirit which actually belongs in heaven that we can enter in but it's on the basis of Christ's bodily ascension his resurrection and ascension and so the dualism between heaven and earth is not resolved by erasing the ontological distinctions between humans and angels rather it's resolved by the extension of God's glory to the human body in Christ Human ontology is transformed, glorified. It is not erased or destroyed. It's on the basis of his humanity that Christ serves as high priest. And it's in our humanity in the resurrection that we're saved. And this corresponds with the vision of the glorious transformation of the world. The whole world is going to be a fit dwelling place for God. The whole world then is the eternal inheritance. The earth is transformed into a fit dwelling place for God. Just as the mortal body is transformed as something fit to enter into heaven. Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem comes to earth and the world then becomes the temple of God. You are God's temple today. So to get a feel for how this dualism is lodged with one each of us, I think bodily resurrection and ascension provides a clue. I think it strikes us as odd. Our thinking has to be stretched to accommodate living out the reality of the resurrection today. 
If we're to enter into the world of Hebrews, if we're to enter into the Sabbath rest, if we're to be avoid being hardened by sin's deceitfulness, we will first need to suspend our belief in the flat world, the flat modern secular metaphysical world that we inhabit. And we need to begin to think that there might be something more than causes and effects that can always be mathematically calibrated. We should be open to even the possibility of entertaining angels unaware. We need to begin to see through to see how heaven is coming to earth among us. We are in a heavenly community right here. We are God's temple. We need to see how today ordinary time is intersected with God's kairos redemptive sort of time. Redemption time in which we can find rest in the presence and fullness of God. Hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. Let's sing our hymn of